0: Assalamu alaikum and hello. Welcome to this Muslim Girl podcast. This is Noor and I'm so excited to be recording this episode today. It's just a solo episode, nothing too special, Um, but I reached out on social media, asked about some of the topics that you guys would want me to discuss and the stuff that came back were so interesting and it just kind of pumped me up. I'm like, yeah, like, let's talk about this. And although I'm a little sad that I don't have someone to go back and forth with on this, I think it'll be pretty fun to just flush out my ideas and maybe it'll be, it'll be a little bit, uh, therapeutic for me. Um, but yeah, I'm just going to jump right in. Um, there was originally one thing that I did want to bring up that wasn't brought up to me and that's the app Clubhouse. Um, so Clubhouse is this new, social media platform that I recently got introduced to by my friend Aya, shout out to you Aya, she invited me in and this was about maybe like two weeks ago and originally I had never heard of it, didn't even know the concept of it and then once I was in I thought this is pretty brilliant. I mean just already being in the podcasting world, um, it was interesting to see a platform in which... It wasn't so much about your engagement and what you post and there's no feed, there's no DMs. It's kind of like networking and then just listening in. So you can sometimes hop into a room, you know, close your phone and like listen to it as you're, I don't know, working out or cleaning or I don't know when people listen to podcasts on their drives. But essentially, you could do the same thing, except this involves multiple people. And sometimes the moderators let as many people into the room as possible and yeah, I, I've been really enjoying it. I enjoy I enjoyed the process of curating what I wanted my, you know, um, space to look like, as in what were the types of rooms and clubs that I wanted to be involved with. And a lot of it is about like entrepreneurship. It's about, you know, uh, Muslims, Muslims in the creative field. I am also in Muslim Women Professionals, which is Created by my friend Sophia Haq who's the CEO and founder of Muslim Women Professionals shout out to her as well she's amazing mashallah she's I'm just so proud of her and I've had her on the podcast before so that's how we met um and yeah it's just it's really cool and they also have this really interesting way to get in so you have to be invited in and I think you can submit like a request and if you have friends on the app they can let you in because I've gotten pinged that you know so and so um, is waiting to get in would you like allow them in and you know I can either accept or decline of course I usually accept I've not had anyone weird try to get in and, and in that case I guess I just wouldn't care much about it but But yeah, I just wanted to talk about that. I think it's really cool. I'd love to do something with uh, this Muslim Girl podcast or just, you know, conversations with other Muslim women, maybe Yemeni women in the future. I know it's very difficult to get clubs approved. I'm assuming they probably have an influx of requests, especially because it's I feel like it's suddenly become very popular. But I know people have been on there for quite some time. So um yeah if you're interested to to join and to see what I possibly maybe do or what rooms I'm in I'm usually honestly a listener I've actually really enjoyed the times that I have engaged in conversation and yeah it has like a really cool like small community vibes obviously of obviously if you're in the right rooms I've heard and seen some drama in some other rooms but Regardless, um, at club on Clubhouse, you can find me at Noor Ali. It's Noor, N-O-O-R. Ali is spelled A-L-L-I-I. And now I'm going to move on to the topics. I'm just opening up my phone because I have them here in my notes. Um, and I have about like six or seven topics. And so I'm not sure if this is going to be one full episode. I typically don't like hour-long episodes for myself unless I have a guest. Um, but something like this where it's just broken into different topics, I like to split it up because I think 30 minutes to 45 is a really good length in time to be able to, I think, really have people invested into the into listening. And I feel like sometimes an hour is too long. So maybe people listen in and then they forget about it and they don't continue to listen on. So this might be a part one to two parts. And I think the only way you'll know is obviously if you reference the title of this episode, if it says part one, then I've obviously split them into uh, two parts so I'm gonna go over really quickly what the the topics are or the questions that way you know what to look forward to um, I might possibly have timestamps in the description you know I watch or listen to a lot of podcasts or like streamed podcasts online like on YouTube and I really appreciate people who go in. And it's usually listeners and they'll put timestamps. And so it's like, okay, cool. This is a, you know, an hour or two hour long podcast. I want to get to one specific topic or let me see what topics are in there. And then that way you can just jump to them. So I think I'll do that with this episode as well, where there'll be um, timestamps in the description so that you're able to just kind of navigate what topics you want to hear about, what topics you don't want to hear about. So the first topic, uh, or I'll just go off the top. The first one is about halal money. And this is a conversation that I was having with someone and it was a really great conversation and it made me realize that I really need to think more broadly about what does halal money mean or halal halal work I guess um, because I think that when we think of that there's a specific there's kind of like a specific thing that most people associate with halal money um and I want to go a little bit deeper into that. So that's one. The second one is about hijabi influencers taking off their hijab, um, obviously on social media. Getting married in the Yemeni culture. Um, as many of you know, I am Yemeni. So this person's asking about, I guess, getting married in my own culture. Um, and then also talking about Mehr. Next is going to be what steps will. I take to ensure that I have found the right person. That was a question that was posed to me on social media, how I found my passion. And I'm really excited for this question because I love talking about passion and dreams and aspirations and all that good stuff. Um, And then last but not least is how COVID wore out its welcome and how to stay sane. Uh, And someone actually added or asked something else that I'm kind of just going to merge with this question. And that's essentially, how do I think that as a society, this year-long pandemic or however long it's going to be for how it's going to change the way that society functions and I'm going to approach it from more of a personal perspective just because for me I've been reflecting a lot about how am I going to come out of this and the changes I've experienced and I've experienced a lot of changes are they long-term are they short-term do I see them as positive changes that I would want to nurture and keep or are they changes that I find are not good for me or possibly toxic that I need to work on slowly shedding once COVID is over and we go back to our normal type of socializing and work and all that stuff. Okay, so I'm going to get started. Topic one is halal money. Okay, so before I get started on, you know, my soapbox and like talking about my thoughts and and introducing more into the topic, I want to ask or pose a question. And I'm going to ask a question. Obviously, it's a rhetorical question in the sense that you're not going to answer, but it's just something I want you to sit with that question, think about it, maybe put me on pause, and then come back and listen to what I have to say. So my question is, when you think of the concepts of halal money, or conversely, haram money, halal work, what comes to mind? What are the, the usual things that cross our mind when we think, oh, I don't want to partake in this because it's obviously haram, and therefore the money or the income that you would receive from this work would not be halal for you and your family. Okay, so just sit with that question. Think about it. Maybe you'll come up with like between three to five things. And then I'll go into my part. Okay, so now, hopefully you paused. You took a second. Now, when when I think about that question, um, and I didn't think about this question, it wasn't until after I had this conversation that I thought, you know, before, the concept of halal money to me was thinking about the black and white stuff that we know is haram the stuff that we can't engage in as muslims and obviously we cannot promote through our businesses and we can't consume so obviously if, like the first one i can think of is alcohol so whether you own a restaurant or you own a business that sells goods or groceries to sell haram um sorry to sell alcohol is haram the money that you would receive in your business would not be considered halal Second is also like lottery, any type of lottery system or or machines that you would have, anything that has to do with gambling would be considered haram. Next is pork. Um, Again, restaurant, groceries type of uh, businesses, and then what was the other one? And then there's obviously taking part in interest. That's whether or not you're providing a service in which you collect interest, or you're you're partaking in something in which you are paying interest. So. I think those are the general things that we hear. For example, when you go to a khutbah and he's talking about, you know, the sheikh is talking about halal money. It's usually like alcohol, smoking, I guess, depending on where you stand on that, um, drugs, uh, pork, and interest. So those are the the things that, because I think they're very concrete and they're black and white. And most people would understand that. Obviously, things like bars and clubs and and, and anything that would have to do with like sex work is the most obvious so I'm not really going to mention those but I think what we miss is the nuance and we don't think about the ethics of the work that we do obviously it's haram to for example completely drip someone or you know take advantage of someone's labor but do we really talk about those things do we talk about the ethics of our business to ensure that the 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 arrangements that we have with people, the people that we employ, the people that we use as vendors, however way, like obviously every industry and every business has different types of setups and and the way that they manage their business, but the ethics of it, are we as Muslims managing our businesses and running our businesses in a way where everything about it is halal, where... You know, you do not fear that you're doing something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would hold you accountable for. And really, that can mean anything. And it's it's sometimes the way that you treat your employees. Um, if you're not considerate, you're not empathetic, uh, you know, you're overworking them, you're underpaying them. Um, even you as an employee, are you taking advantage of your employer? Are you stealing from your employer? Also, sometimes there's benefits or specific programs that apply to like small businesses and they're available for people who really need it. And are you essentially milking, you know, the system for your own benefit towards something you actually don't need? And you're basically taking a benefit from someone who actually does need it. So I think it's, it's the idea around that and really thinking about making sure that we would never, um, oppress people or oppress other. Whether it's the labor that you that you have for your business, it's the the people that you work with and have contracts with. Like just in every sense, you would never oppress someone in order to be advantageous or to obviously gain more capital. That you know, because as Muslims we understand that there's nothing halal about seeking money, but doing it in a way that is haram. Doing it in a way where you oppress people where you manipulate people, where you lie, where you steal. Um, because there's there's nothing wrong with saying I want to be successful. There's nothing wrong with saying that I want money, that I want to have financial freedom, that I want financial stability, that I want to make more money. All of that is halal. There's nothing wrong with it and, you know, more power to you. I think we should all have that type of mentality. But of course, again, just never doing it in a way where you compromise other people around you just for your own self-interest and you become very selfish. So very, you know, I hope I didn't take too much time talking about that because it's a very interesting topic, but I think there's so much more to it than obviously what I can talk about because I'm just going off of what I think is common sense, but I'm sure that there's someone out there who's far more professional and more educated, Dean-wise, to speak about this topic and to provide more insight onto looking at the nuances of running a business and the halal aspect of it outside of what what is obvious, you know, the things that when you were sitting down thinking about the question that popped into your mind or what I mentioned earlier. So yeah, I think really interesting conversation to have with people, really interesting conversation. I would love to sit in and learn more about inshallah. Okay, next question. This question is i don't know how i feel about this question and i'll say well okay so it's about hijabi influencers who take off their hijab i don't mind having conversations about you know talking about this i don't think that we should completely not talk about people's choices and the things that are happening within our communities and i'm talking about like broader muslim communities because it is important that we know what's happening and i think approaching it from a approaching it from a perspective where we're trying to learn and understand what is the experience of this group of women who are deciding to take off their hijab? Maybe it's super serious and there's a lot to it and maybe it's not that deep. But I want to learn. I want to be more empathetic. I want to understand as a Muslim woman myself, you know, and I think it benefits everyone to to listen to these women's stories and just to understand. And I think the reason a lot of them don't share it and they don't really owe it to anybody because, you know, their hijab and their... Their piety, their their religiousness, all that stuff is between them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It has nothing to do with us. But you are in the public space, especially if you are an influencer. So you can't avoid that at all. And so I don't mind having the conversation. I don't mind seeing the conversation take place. But what I've been really, um, I guess discouraged about and why I've not wanted recently to get involved in for example talking about it on the podcast or even when I see it happen like I just avoid the comment section at all costs like we socially distance because people are so toxic and it just makes me so sad because someone who chooses to make a change in their life albeit you know something that as Muslims we say oh you know Hadith, this person or hadith, you know we would hope that she would you know fee- feel what other people feel when they wear the hijab and that she would have that connection with it but that's just not the reality for everyone and for people to jump on there and be surprised that some girls do them like honestly i don't think there's anyone that's done it where i've been like really surprised and said i never saw this coming Almost everyone goes through the same process where you you slowly see it happening and you just know that they're trying to ease people into the idea for them to feel comfortable which no one ever I mean not no one but people don't feel comfortable because the backlash still happens. But the comment section and the conversation around what they do is just so toxic and I'm really upset and I'm really tired of seeing Muslim women and men in the comment section like attacking you know this woman for her choice. And saying such hateful things. I'm not talking about the, the person who says, oh, you know, I'm really sad and, and, you know, I really looked up to you. Those questions don't bother me because, I mean, you you choose who you look up to on social media. So if someone changes, then just unfollow them. Like, it's as simple as that. But it's the people that are out there yelling, you're going to hell. You're this. You're, you know, I'm not going to repeat what some of the people say on my you know podcast because I don't think I even have a single episode where it's explicit and this isn't going to be the first one but I just don't think it's right and I think it pushes our Muslim sisters that are struggling with hijab or that are choosing not to wear the hijab further away from even the like further away from our community because who would want to be a part of such a toxic group of people where you're only accepted if you live by their standards in which those people themselves aren't aren't willing to take the time to learn about you, understand you, help you, some of those girls need help. Um, One girl in particular, who I follow, was talking about how in the process of taking it off, it was because she was dealing with so much, you know, uh, depression. And so instead of people asking about that when she opened up to it, no, it was all about the hijab. Oh, you looked more beautiful with the hijab on. Why did you take it off? You're ugly now. Like, I just, I don't understand this concept what makes you think that you're so much more righteous as a person that you feel like god is going to be okay with the types of comments that you put on there telling someone that you're that they're going to go to hell because they took off the hijab you know let that's said for a reason because no one no one is promised anything as muslims there is nothing that says that we are promised Jannah. you know there's nothing that says that we are promised or that we are going to hell for sure if we do this because you know god is the most merciful and at the end of the day it really is about what you do and the mistakes you make and then you have to repent for them you have to truly genuinely repent for them and again why is it any of our business to try to uh understand or figure out like what a person is doing between them and god It's not. But I do think that there is a benefit for our greater community to understand why our girls taking off the hijab because maybe there's something in our society that we're lacking support or something that is allowing people to do or to to step away from the deen in, in a lot of ways. And maybe that's a reason for us to step up and to do something about it. And maybe it's not. Maybe it's like I said, it's not that deep. You know, some girls never got to choose it and they never had a connection with the hijab so they got to a point in their life where they were able to take it off either they were now separated from the people who forced them to wear it or they felt more confident to be able to make that bold choice for themselves i i don't know but i just i would love to have more conversations i wish we had more of a safe healthy space to learn more about you know what's happening and to from a perspective of wanting to be empathetic and supportive to our you know muslim sisters but no it's just it's really toxic and i don't like it so that's that's my piece on the hijab um second is getting married in yemeni culture and the concept of maher this is a good one and i'm not sure if the person who's asking is talking about like because that's literally how they wrote it, getting married in Yemeni culture. I don't know if they're talking about like what's our traditions because we have some really cool, beautiful traditions or if they're talking about the kind of the process that, I I feel like the person is asking more about my opinion on how negative and difficult sometimes it can be to get married in the Yemeni culture, especially if it's with a person who is not Yemeni but i will say first and foremost that in the yemeni culture most yemeni cultures not all or most yemeni families have a way of doing things and i think that it's so much more constricting than what what the deen allows in terms of the access that the 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 man and the woman have to each other and i think that's where we have it wrong in our culture um and in our process is it's just very limiting. And I feel like for such a big decision, it needs to be like, that's where you need to be the most lenient. And, you know, in Islam, there's, there's so much that the men and and the women have access to each other, to make sure that they're making the right decision to get to know each other. And unfortunately, sometimes culture and families get in the way because they try to restrict it as much as possible. And so I think, in the culture it just needs to be a little bit more open-minded and I'm sure that there's a lot of families that now are becoming you know a little bit more open-minded but when it comes to you know being alone there's just always and I'm talking about post nikah I'm not talking about before they can't be alone there has to be a chaperone um there it's everything is supervised and before the communication has to be very minimal and I just don't understand how you can have a conversation with someone And ask them, you know, like, first of all, just have a conversation to see if you click and then just ask them the questions that are important to you when you're around family. So I just don't think that that's the right setup for people to comfortably speak to each other. And, you know, some people, they're not allowed to communicate via the phone or text or anything like that. So again, very old school way of doing things and it's still alive and, and thriving in a lot of communities. Um, And also a lot of people or a lot of families are still not open to the idea of their sons or daughters or more specifically daughters marrying outside of their race or like, you know, outside of being Yemeni. And so the idea of someone who's not Yemeni marrying them is still a no-no and they still have preference over someone who is Yemeni. And in today's world where we're just so connected with other people through school, through social media... It's just not as realistic um for for that expectation to to be there for some people so yeah, I think it's it's um it's something that's gonna have to change over time because I just don't see it lasting a long time unless again like the people that's how some people want to go about the process then hey d- do what's best for you, I guess and then there's mahar not just mahr but the marriage contract the contract the islamic marriage contract one thing i've been thinking about recently is women are not as involved as they should be or maybe not involved at at all and some of you women who are the ladies on here listening who are married maybe you can tell me how involved were you with the marriage contract like were you able to have a seat at the table to talk about what the negotiations were not just towards your mahr but also like what did you want to put on there and if you did have something you wanted to put on there like a shart were you able to voice that were you um was that was that even like was that idea welcome that you could approach your father your wali and say hey um when it comes to my aqd uh, to my nikah contract i want this to be included in here you know because i feel like it's kind of unfair it's usually maybe the family so obviously the father of the bride the groom is i'm sure involved but sometimes he himself also has his father who is speaking for him and i don't know i just feel like maybe we should take more ownership of that maybe we should step up and you know voice our opinions on things but also first and foremost before any of we do any of that because the problem is is we probably don't even know that we have that right or that you know what what is what is our reach what can we do and for me it's like i want to educate myself on that because it's not a it's not a common practice, I think, for women to be involved. And I honestly don't know how involved you can you can be, but I'm pretty sure you can get very involved considering it's your life and your commitment, you know, your relationship that you're committing to. So I think that, that would be a really cool podcast top podcast topic. If anyone knows of someone who is in the legal realm who knows about this kind of stuff and is more specifically a woman, I would love to sit and have a conversation. I want to educate myself and you guys on you know how do we secure ourselves when it comes to marriage you know th- there's also the concept of mu'akhar which is essentially like alimony i think but it's so that if he divorces you you are entitled to uh a certain amount of money and you know the concept maher all that stuff was is set in place to protect the woman to make sure that especially because traditionally women were financially dependent on their husbands I mean they were financially dependent on their fathers and then they become financially dependent on their husbands obviously that's not the case as much anymore today but regardless her money is her money and his money is her money so it's to ensure that she's always going to be taken care of and that in the instance where she is separated from him or whatever it is like she would still have something to go off of for some time to be able to take care of herself while she transitions out of being a married woman who was taken care of by you know, said man to now being a single woman and maybe living back with her family or on her own. Um, So yeah, that would be amazing. And I don't hear enough about that type of stuff. So again, if anyone knows or is interested, hit me up. I would love to have a conversation about that. Okay, next topic is what steps will you take to ensure that you have found the right person? I just want to say that Muslims and Arabs, well, just like Muslims, are kind of obsessed with the topic of marriage. Um, I feel like you could really talk about marriage in almost any conversation and and their ears perk up and it's like, yeah, I want to listen in about dating, halal dating, haram dating, um, meeting someone, whatever, the process of getting married. And even for people who are married, I'm sure that they're still engaging in or wanting to listen in to conversations about what do you do after you're married. How do you communicate? How do you make the other person happy? How do you find happiness? How do you deal with insecurities? I'm sure that it just, the list goes on. But for me, I think there is a few things that I would want to talk about in relation to this question. So I'm not married, but I have experienced since I was probably in my early 20s, being like having to deal with the the process of, okay, getting to know someone. And that has ranged from, a very traditional approach where it was like my family is like saying hey there's this family and they want you for their son to someone that i met in person to someone you know through mutual friends through social media all of that stuff like i think everyone experiences some type of you know especially girls i think more than guys but that some sh- someone shows an interest in you and it never really goes maybe that deep but there has to be a process and i think what i've learned over the years and this is something that I think the other day I was in a clubhouse with uh, my friend Sophia Haq and it was part of Muslim women professionals and they were talking about setting standards. And one thing I can say is that in my early 20s, now I know that some people get married at a young age and it works out for them. I don't think I would have been that person who could have gotten married at a young age and it would have worked out. I just didn't have the personality to, I think, you know, take care of myself and to set standards and prioritize myself and do all that all the stuff that you need to do to be secure in your relationship. I don't think I had that and so when we talk about setting standards, we're talking about like knowing what you want. Um not just in the other person, but what do you want your life to be? Where do you see yourself? What kind of person are you? How can you portray that to the other person so that they also can say yes, I accept who you are or I reject who you are. And that's part of the process is acceptance and rejection. So I think that one, first and foremost, you have to be in a position where you have gained some confidence, you have gained some self-worth, some some knowledge about who you are, what's important to you, where you see your life going. If you are still in a position, and I, I don't I don't think age matters, if you but if you are in a position where you are having a lot of insecurities, um trust issues, you're just uncertain about yourself. If you need to work on yourself, that's a priority way before you need to think about meeting someone because it's it's a very unhealthy way to start a relationship when you yourself are still dealing and going through so much. And it just makes the process of really getting to know someone and letting them get to know you very difficult. So I think, one, you have to be in a position where you feel good about yourself because when you approach that person, you need to be able to say, these are my standards, these are my expectations, these are my boundaries, etc. And so I think when when you initially, so when you meet someone or someone approaches you or what have you, I don't know what the setup is like. Obviously, there's just, like I said, there's so many ways. I think for me personally, and the advice I would give to others is that you need to make sure that from the beginning of the conversation, you need to make it clear what the intentions are with the other person. Because there's a lot of people out there who are not going to be honest or aren't, their intentions aren't what yours are which is you know the the reason you talk to someone is the intention to get married that's what us muslims are supposed to do and so i think from the beginning talk about the hard questions um because there's a lot of things that are, should be like easy yes no you know maybe those need to be asked at the very beginning. I think what's an issue or what could be a problem is when you avoid those type of questions and so you just start talking for months and months and months and it's just like random things and you just like enjoy the person's company and then next thing you know, you're becoming emotionally attached to this person and then you're finding it really hard to not just engage in those questions, those hard-hitting questions, but maybe even their response to something you ask Is not what you want to hear, but you ignore it or you refuse to really listen to what they're saying because you don't want to believe it. And so they can be showing you that they are this type of person and you're painting a different picture just because, you know, you want to, you don't want to accept that they are different from what you thought and because you did avoid... Asking them these important questions for a really long time. And now you're blinded by your infatuation towards that person. And it just puts you in a really sticky situation. So I think both parties need to just be upfront from the beginning. Like, hey, how are you... Like, what's, you know, the, the, the halal-haram ratio? Like, whether you're a r- religious person or not, that's an important piece. Like, hey, this is how I live my lifestyle. Would you accept that? This is my type of relationship with my family. This is my expectation of a significant other. Um... these are my flaws this is how I deal with anger this is how I deal with problems this is how I deal with whatever it is there's just there's so many things and you can go online you can google questions to ask someone but do that in the beginning because it's so much easier to answer honestly when you are just in the early stages because you're not too worried about what the other person is going to think of you and you can confidently just be like look if I'm not the right person for you then you know, you go your way, I go my way, like no hard feelings. Trust me, I think you'd want to go through that process much earlier on than when you've either gotten family involved or have gotten engaged or even maybe even, you know, have had kids and obviously gotten married. So just I think be really smart and, and have, you know, th- be just thoughtful about the process, have the good intention. Really make it clear what your expectations are, ladies, set standards for what you want. Let that person know what kind of life you anticipate to have or what you dream to have. I think that's important. Talk about your dreams. You want someone who's going to listen and think, wow, that's amazing and, and is gonna wanna be a part of that process because it's not always gonna be rainbows and butterflies. It's gonna be very hard. And so you need to make sure that you pick the right person for that for the ride and that you're the right person for, you know, their journey. And so I think that's what's important to me is don't waste time. Don't do that lovey-dovey stuff early on. Like, I'm sorry, it's just, it's not worth it. And it just doesn't work for us uh, as Muslims. You know, keep it halal because you want the barakah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that marriage. Um, Also, another thing too is like, if you have some type of, let's say, timeline that you want to keep, you know, have then you need to voice that from the beginning so if you're like look I only want to talk to you for about three months and after three months if we still want to continue I think I want you to approach my dad or I want you to talk to my dad there's nothing wrong with saying that and first of all someone who is a man and someone who is interested in you isn't going to see that as necessarily a challenge they might yeah of course is it going to be stressful is they're going to be anxious about it yes but if they're ready for marriage and they're ready for commitment and they really genuinely see so much potential in you then that shouldn't be an issue and if they're kind of avoiding it and it gets prolonged I've seen people be in relationships for years where it just constantly gets being pushed over and over and over then that's a red flag I think and really, when it comes to timelines, if this is something that you want, it's not so much that like, oh, if after three months, I want you to talk to my baba. It's like, it doesn't mean that there's going to be a nakah coming up. No, it's it's just another step to show that there's seriousness. And also, I think that there is something very valuable about getting families involved because getting to know the other person's family um, and, that, and him getting to know your family and the families getting to know each other is also another indicator of like whether or not this is going to be a good match because family does matter obviously to an extent but see what they're like and how they interact with their family there's so much you can learn about a person when you meet the people who grew up with them the people that raised um you know raised them and so it's not so much that after three months it's like I want to get married um, I guess unless that's your thing but it's more about taking the next step and not just spending more time just talking sometimes about nonsense and letting time pass and not really knowing where this is going Always try to move towards the best path that's going to lead you towards getting to know as much as possible about the person so you feel secure in your decision. And yeah, that's a good step. Okay, so next is how I found my passion. So for me, when I think of like my passion, I think, well, I think passion is synonymous with like um, your what you feel like your life's purpose is and so for some people that's a hobby or their work or you know their children but I think even beyond that because you know you obviously can have more than one passion for me it's it's like you know this podcast and it's my art and it's my aspirations to own a business it's it's like many things and where it comes where I think I found my passion is a point in time where I found interest in something and I found myself thinking about that thing. So, you know, when you're in deep thought, like it usually happens, for example, before you go to sleep or when you're in the shower or driving and your mind is like thinking about ideas. Um, maybe you recently have been exposed to something cool and you're like, oh, I could totally do this. Um, or you just, keep thinking about when how much you enjoy doing that thing. I think that's when passion is sparked and then it's up to you to nurture it, to, to do something with it because obviously if you just do nothing then it can fizz out or maybe it'll just always live there anxiously in your system or you can fulfill it and For me, when I was in school, I was not only a part of like this debate team that introduced me into behavioral science, but also I was taking art at the same time. And then I went to school and I studied both. And even when it came to art, like one thing I never really did is I never studied like the technicalities of art. I never learned how to be you know, a realist when it came to my paintings or anything like that. Even when the photography classes I took, everything was conceptual. And I did that on purpose because I wanted to be more of a conceptual artist. It wasn't so much that I wanted to be the person who could draw the best, you know, portrait or, you know, lifelike image. It was more so that I had ideas and concepts and I wanted to figure out like what's the best medium for me to portray what I'm trying to say or depict. And so... And because a lot of it had to do with my background in political science and behavioral science, and you know, thinking about like culture and traditions and things that bothered me, like gender roles and you know, different movements that were happening historically, um, and how the art world was reacting to it. So all that stuff is what really just it was the best time in college. Anything that any time I was involved with anything that had to do with the mix of those two I was just always having a great time I could do it all day and obviously after I graduated you kind of get a job and then you realize you know I still have my passions but if I'm not able to do them it just I don't know you feel like something is missing and sometimes that passion is also you feel like you have a service or, or, or something good that you can do and give back and that people can benefit from it so whatever that passion is it first has to come from from within you you just know you feel it you feel like that's a calling and if that thing that you you feel if if it's something that you don't have the skill set for don't let that be a deterrent or discourage you because skills can be learned or taught or, or whatever um in this day and age, like how lucky are we? We have YouTube. We have, uh, you know, even sub- subscription-based applications like Skillshare. Skillshare? I think that's what it's called. Um, there's just so much online, whether it's for free or paid, that can teach you to essentially do everything. Like, we are in the era of being autodidactic and, and just being able to have information at the, you know, tips of our fingers. And... So if you are feel like okay I want to be an artist but like I don't know how to draw you can pursue it and sometimes you know maybe you come out of it and you're like okay maybe this isn't the right thing for me but at least you got to experience it. you you got to get that off of your chest I wasn't into digital illustrations or art until I saw it and I was like I want to try this out and I got an iPad and I had to do so much learning and then I you know slowly got better at it but there's nothing I I feel like there's so much that you can do and so much that you can learn so don't be discouraged by by learning a skill set because that's available um for you the only thing that you have to have is discipline and you don't want to like so motivation is going to exist but motivation is just like a fire within you but that fire can die out if you don't sit there and keep the flames you know going and you keep the flames going by being discipline that's like the key thing you know someone once told me that you do not chase motivation you're supposed to chase discipline and that's so true because it's it's what you do with your time and maybe sometimes it takes lifestyle changes so maybe it takes that you prioritize things that you cut out some bad habits that you actually get enough sleep that you eat better that you take care of yourself so that you can be more disciplined because sometimes what gets in the way of discipline is our own health our mental health our physical health um so yeah, um, I think that's very important. And also, I think that we need to change the way that we view success and the way that we view fa- failure. For me, I've always kind of understood the concept like okay, there's success and the opposite success of is failure. But failure is actually part of success. It's it's one of it's like a byproduct. You, in order to reach success, you're gonna have to fail not just once but like many times. And it's about how resilient you are about. Every time you fall, you just get back up because every time you get back up, you're coming back into the, you know, into the ring of, you know, you fighting with more experience, with, um, you know, just a better shot at what you're trying to do. Every time you fail, you actually get better. There's not a single person who has not failed in order to reach their success. The opposite of success is actually to quit. So once you've completely closed that door on whatever that dream is, is that you wanted or opportunity you've taken the active step to completely kill it um, but failure does not kill a dream it does not kill the idea of success it just you know it's it's the process and you have to be okay with the process because nothing comes easy and last but not least is about covid out staying it's welcome and how to stay sane um to be honest i do obviously see us towards the end. I see the light. My dad alhamdulillah got his two vaccines already done and we're just waiting for my mom to be able to have access to it. And then I think my sister and I I'm talking about my household, like the people that I live with, we're also, you know, inshallah going to get vaccinated. Vaccines could be a whole nother topic. I'm not gonna get into it right now, but yes, I'm going to get vaccinated. Um and I just think that once we get out of that, life is just gonna be like so much better. Um, but it's it's going to be a transitional process anyway. But I think just that fear and stress of, you know, getting sick and, and not knowing whether or not we would be one of those people that get COVID but have like the worst reaction to it. So um, yeah, so that's that. But I think when it comes to if I think that there's going to be some type of societal change, the way that we do things because of COVID, I think for a long time, we will. I don't know about, you know, five years from now. But I think that for the next couple of years, I think so. I think that it's just not going to be the norm to maybe shake hands or like the way that we used to share food at restaurants, uh, just how we interacted with each other might be a little different. I think more people are just going to stick to wearing the masks. But beyond the like kind of social, how we socially interact and all that stuff. And I think that we'll see different groups like age groups react differently and transition differently but for me personally one of the things that I've been thinking about is have I changed which yes the answer is yes I have changed during the pandemic um with the way that you know my world changed but are there have I changed for the better um or the worse or both and yes the answer is both how do I make sure that the bad stuff that I can't get rid of right now, because I'm not in a position to get rid of it, um, because I'm still stuck in this, you know, kind of isolated world, how do I make sure that I shed that as I transition back into quote unquote normalcy? And the stuff that is good, how do I nurture that so that I can keep it and it can be something that I carry on with me? So for example, um, some of the good that I would say is I've taken, I've spent a lot of time by myself and really learning more about myself. And I've had to not, okay, so when I've experienced any type of really severe anxiety, when I've had a lot of, you know, kind of mental health um, issues, it's really easy for me to take my mind off of it and be distracted by going out, hanging out with friends. And yes, those can be coping meca- mechanisms sometimes, but they also can be a way for me to avoid dealing with the root of the problem. And for the first time, I really was very, very limited by what I can distract myself. You know, even Netflix and streaming um, uh, apps and stuff weren't going to be enough for me to try to distract it. So I had to face things head on and it was very difficult, but I think at the end of the day, it was very beneficial. And so I, I like that aspect and I want to be a person who is able to face more of what it is I'm going through rather than trying to avoid it and then I think some of the bad things that I have kind of um, gained during this time is that it's so easy for me to be antisocial and to not talk to people and honestly like if someone wants to hang out you know virtually it's so easy for me to be honest and just say no I really don't feel like seeing anyone and I mean, yeah, take time for yourself, but I think it gets to a point where it's kind of unhealthy. And then I get really exhausted. Like it takes a lot out of me to socially interact, even virtually, which is really weird because I've always been an extrovert my whole life. Um, Actually, no, not my whole life. My whole adult life, I've been very extroverted, very comfortable speaking to people. It it like gives me energy to be able to socialize. And every time I took the Myers-Briggs... Uh, test which is a personality test if you haven't taken it google it take it Um, I've always came out as an extrovert never like on the cusp it was just always very clear extrovert and I recently took it because I thought you know I've noticed that I'm very um, to myself and that I'm very comfortable this way and I think that even after I'm allowed to go out I'm sure there'll be a rush of like seeing my friends and game nights and all this stuff but then I think eventually I'll want to go back and be a recluse And so I retook the test and I actually came out as an E and I. So I was on the cusp. It was like, I guess, so 50-50 that I could either be an E or an I alongside the other uh, character traits. So if you're someone who's like me, either you've taken the test before, I would highly suggest taking it again just to see if there's a difference on what the pandemic and, and being in isolation to an extent has had an impact on your personality and if not then take the test and answer it if you could try to remember what you were like before and then take it again being just like honest with with your feelings now and see if there's a difference because I think that that's really interesting but yeah I think I've just really realized how important mental health is during this time not just for myself but for a lot of people and if mental health is something we all deal with, um, obviously to different extents, but every person has mental health um, issues, like things that they have to, to deal with. Every family and household has issues that they need to also deal with. And I think that if you think that you don't, you're probably blind to it because, I mean, I don't know, unless you're very lucky. And I'm not saying that it's like an extreme form of, like, mental ailments. I'm just talking about things that, like, anxiety that people deal with. I think that, you know, there's there's things that, there's traumas that we deal with and even our parents deal with that we don't recognize, that we've never, you know brought to the forefront and that we've always just hid because that's what Arabs do right we just hide stuff and we don't want to deal with it and we think if it's not like if we can't see it it's not there but then it presents itself in the future and then you see things come up and you see that there's these repetitive issues that like never go away and you realize that's because we've never dealt with the trauma and yeah I think I would I would love to see mental health Services be more accessible and affordable towards people because it makes me really sad that, you know, obviously medical, you know, health, uh, I'm sorry, medical help is, medical services are available. And whether or not you have insurance, and I know like we can go into that whole conversation, but it's like everyone knows that healthcare is, you know, a human right. But I also think that it, it extends beyond that, that mental health is also a human right because sometimes not taking care of your mental health is going to lead to health problems that would cause you then to seek medical attention. Um, And I wish that we could have uh, mental health resources that are specific to Muslims, that are specific to Arabs, that are in different languages. I I just wish it could be more accessible. And I'm very lucky that I am in a position where it is very accessible and free to me because of my employer, because it's helped me and I think if more people had access to it, then we would just be in so much more of a better position as 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 individuals, as families, as you know, communities. Yeah, I don't know why I went too deep into that. I feel like it was kind of a non sequitur. But, anyways, um, that was all the topics. And like I said, I I'm actually not sure whether this is a two part um episode, but I guess we'll find out when I edit this. I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions. If I did not address your question or your topic, I'm saving it either for another episode or I felt like it kind of was covered by another topic that I already addressed. Um, As always, you can find this Muslim Girl podcast on Instagram and Twitter. You can find Nurz Nook at Nours N O O R S N O O K. Um and now on Clubhouse, which is Nur Noor Ali N O O R A L L I I And yeah, I hope you guys have a beautiful morning, day, evening, afternoon, whatever time you're listening to this, and I'll catch you in the next episode, inshallah.